We acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. If you have a look at the native food industry, there's six and a half thousand different types of native foods or plants in Australia. So yeah, huge opportunity, huge potential for farmers everywhere. This is the Big Shift for Small Farms podcast. G'day listeners, I'm your host Edgar Greston. You know, small-scale farmers are faced with a lot of pressures, from climate change on the farm to competition in the marketplace. Now, are you the type of person that keeps doing what they've always done? Or do you look for ways to innovate? It doesn't always have to be trying something new. It could mean just doing things a little different. So in this episode, we're talking to farmers and producers about Australian-made emerging opportunities. From climate-tolerant native bush foods to economically sustainable bespoke dairy products. Not only can they help farm business, but also the broader community and our planet. My project is about helping small dairy farmers transform up the value chain to produce their own branded product. That's Cressida Keynes from Pecora Dairy, a sheep milk dairy and cheesery based in the southern highlands of New South Wales. And the project she's talking about is Dairy Cocoon, an online resource and network to help dairy farmers innovate and stay viable. So obviously in the southern highlands it's pretty beautiful farming country and particularly in this area of Robertson and Kangaloon there were lots of old dairy farms here and um, you know over the years they've all closed down and, and you can see dairy sheds kind of littered throughout the landscape and it made me kind of think and look a little bit more into the statistics and it shows that really the big dairy farms are fine because they've got that bargaining power but it's the little family-owned dairy farms who are really falling off a cliff. So just to give you an idea, we had 486 small family-owned dairy farms close last year, which is the biggest annual exodus wow. we've ever had. Very confronting. So in the 1980s, we had 22,000 dairy farms in Australia, and today we've got just over 5,000. So it's sobering, and obviously once they're gone, they're gone. That's it. So we've got that situation and then on the other hand we've got a situation where we import a huge amount of cheese into this country and that's growing by 4,000 tonnes every year. So Australians want dairy, you know, we have an appetite for cheese, particularly specialty cheese and yoghurt. It's interesting the sales of liquid milk, we're actually drinking less liquid milk but the demand for specialty cheese, so really good artisan cheese, is, is increasing. So we've got a, a demand of cheese which is currently being filled by imported product, I suppose. And then thinking about the way we've done things and we're really grateful for the, the support that we've had with our artisan farmhouse cheese making business. And I just was thinking, you know, there's got to be another way, you know, there's got to be another way for some, not all, small dairy farms who want to break away from the processes. So because there's only a few processes and there's that very high, tightly held retail market, it's really difficult for small processes to have any sort of bargaining power. So the idea I came up with was a website called Dairy Cocoon, which is going to be business skills and education and support. 
um, in the form of a support hub for small dairy farmers to go on there and produce a business plan and input their financials into these spreadsheets that I've got which they'll be able to model out various scenarios so the, things like branded milk, yogurt, gelato, cheese and just see where that fits for their farm and then be able to move on to education and also that support network which I think is really really important because sometimes when you've got an idea it's really hard to move it to the next step particularly when you're a farmer and you spend so much time on farm you know out in the paddock by yourself and you have these ideas and you think you know should I shouldn't I and perhaps your family have been doing the same thing for generations it's a huge move to think I'm going to do something a different way so to have that support with community and mentors, I think can potentially really help people to make the decision to actually break those shackles of being a price taker and start becoming a price setter and take back control of their businesses and, and thereby really secure the long-term future of their farm for their families who hopefully want to take up dairying because I really genuinely do believe there is a bright future for dairy in this country. Beyond the financial benefits of perhaps going smaller scale, going bespoke, what about the kind of health benefits to individual farm owners in terms of, you know, taking control again? Yeah, look, I think um, there's numerous benefits, not only to the farmer, but also to the land, you know, by... By producing your own product, it means that potentially dairy farmers can really reduce their herd numbers. So we've got a friend in Kiama, the Pines Dairy, who've done an amazing job producing up the value chain and then they've now get the, got their own very successful brand. And they were, you know, selling milk to the processors, milking 120-odd cows, and now they're back down to milking 30. So that's really reducing the pressure on the land, the pressure of feeding costs, you know, and as we move into climate uncertainty, we really do need to be giving some serious thought as to how we're going to be resilient and how we're going to look after the land and how we're going to obviously look after the, the people who are farming it as well because it's just too much stress. So reducing that pressure, reducing the inputs necessary and then also making a higher value product is one way where some small dairy farms can start to take back that control. Why sheep? Why <laughs> sheep? You're going bespoke, but you're going like super bespoke. Yeah, we are. Look, we're a sheep dairy, an artisan sheep dairy, and we milk 140 East Frisian dairy ewes. So we're a seasonal producer. We milk for 10 months of the year and then give the girls a break for a couple of months. I think as a farmer, first of all, you generally pick an animal because you really genuinely love them. I did actually have a house cow. I also had dairy goats for a little while and they ended up in the freezer because they just <laughs> kept climbing fences and I couldn't deal with it. But sheep are, yeah, they're just our love. Michael and I just genuinely love working with them. East Asians have been bred for generations as a dairy animal, so they're very docile, they're very willing, they come into the dairy very easily. In fact, we're flat out getting them out. Um, and I suppose any animal that you work with on a daily basis really you you form a connection with and I do enjoy telling the stories you know on my social media and things of um, 
the crazy antics that our naughty sheep get up to because they are just so delightful to work with. So I suppose it was that, it was the love of the animal and also there is no doubt that sheep milk is a very high value product. It's a very dense, nutritious milk, very, very high in solids, almost twice the protein and the calcium of cow's milk. So in terms of cheese making, which was always our end goal, it was always what we wanted to do, it's a very suitable milk. In fact, it's sort of the Rolls Royce of milk for cheese making. And, and why is that just working with the raw material it's, it's actually better for making the cheese? It is because it's so high in solids. So that means fat and protein, calcium and all the minerals and things like that. So it makes incredibly beautiful cheeses. So there's obviously huge numbers of brands of European cheeses and sheep have been milked in Europe for in fact, almost longer than cows. So there's a lot of sheep milk cheese in Europe. It's just not something that we're completely familiar with in Australia. Overall, I think there's been a profound shift towards Australian produce and people seeking the stories and the understanding behind their food. And I think that Australian agriculture is an exciting place and we've always been very, very innovative. And, you know, people are doing some absolutely wonderful small niche industry and, and as you say, emerging industries, things like seaweed and different dairying. And, you know, I mean, there's some really fascinating areas that are starting to be explored and which are sustainable and also amazing from, from the sort of nutrient possibility. So I think that Australians are adaptable and I think that, you know, seeking those stories behind those small brands and, you know, looking out for smaller producers is, is really something that we all need to be looking at. If you have a look at the native food industry, there's six and a half thousand different types of native foods or plants in Australia. So yeah, huge opportunity, huge potential for farmers everywhere. And I think probably that's the other exciting part is that there is native foods everywhere across Australia. So there's a huge opportunity for any farmer anywhere in Australia to kind of adapt and, and work with native foods and give them a go and see what the potential is. Josh Gilbert, I'm a Warramai man from the north coast of New South Wales. Both parents are Aboriginal, both Warramai people, and this is home. I am a consultant for a large consulting practice, and also, I guess, my ag involvement stems from beef cattle predominantly on my parents' property, but also more recently with my nan's property down near Canberra, a sheep property down there. I think for me, the exciting bit about native foods is that you've got a very supply-limited, demand-driven market. So through all the consultation work I've done in native foods, you go out to different farms and kind of story that keeps getting told that, oh, we had a cordial producer come to us who wants to make a native food cordial of some variety and they ask for eight ton and we don't produce eight tons worth of native foods on our farm and maybe even the whole sector doesn't produce eight tons yet so we couldn't engage in that conversation yet for me that shows that the demand for native foods is incredible and we we know that from a huge variety of different conversations that we've had we also know that there's a lot of indigenous knowledge that hasn't kind of come to a fore in native foods yet so when we talk about how native foods are used we, we haven't really had the conversation as to, you know, what are the other uses? And we're still having conversation around Kakadu Plum, for instance, around, you know, does it preserve the life of seafood or, you know, can it be used to 
treat different ailments or it's also the highest natural vitamin c level of any natural plant in the world so you you bring all that together and all of a sudden you start scratching your head and saying well what kind of market do we target this at because there's so many different uses and maybe that's the big risk of calling them native foods or botanicals is that by really limiting it with that language we fail to acknowledge the many uses of these plants and how they had been used in the past but also how they could be used in the future so by calling them a native food or even a botanical that's a very 2D way of looking at it, I guess. And if we want to draw out the third dimension, we really need to understand how it was used traditionally, but also kind of explore and, you know, look at the potential for using it, you know, a whole range of different ways as well. And, and what that does is unlocks the view that culture and particularly Indigenous culture is static. What it does is unpacks that staticness or saying, that well, that's the past and that's kind of all culture is and emerges it through a new dialogue to say that it's adaptable, that it works together with Western science and culture and agriculture and every other element of everyday society, that we can weave Indigenous culture through that, or vice versa even, that we can weave Western society through Indigenous culture to rethink about things and bring the narrative together for joint benefit, I guess. Whilst there's a great potential for people to find connection and deepen their understanding of Indigenous culture through native bush foods, for Josh, the question of knowledge ownership still needs to be addressed. The other kind of sticking point at the moment is Indigenous cultural intellectual property around the plants. Who owns them? How are they used? Who gets the benefit of those? Uh, if I look at you know what has been done in America, for instance, you have an Indigenous agricultural council over there um, who actually look after the rights and the impacts of Indigenous ag and, you know, go to government and speak to them about Indigenous needs in in the agricultural space. They try and upskill Indigenous farmers. All of that happens overseas, but yet for some reason in Australia, we just haven't been able to open that dialogue, let alone allow for those kind of conversations to happen or the structures to exist. We haven't talked about Indigenous food sovereignty, for instance, how we can enable food sovereignty, which then actually provides Indigenous people with the rights to harvest and and still look after native foods, but also provides the commercialization opportunity for others in that. But really, I think if we were to take that whole of agricultural approach and have that conversation, that we'd be a lot further forward than trying to fend people off and saying, well, this is ours and that's not, and you know, we want this bit and this is our knowledge and this is how we're going to use it. By actually acknowledging Indigenous food sovereignty, we say that Indigenous people are the knowledge holders of those products and that we need to work with them to help commercialise this and, and understand the products as well. And it's only through that recognition that food sovereignty exists that we can go forward together, black and white, and really have that conversation and then unlock and enable investment through that. You know, someone who's non-Indigenous and wanted to develop something, do you have any insights or what someone should do to sort of do it right? You know, really engage with the local mob and have the conversation about native foods. And, and if you are having troubles getting in contact with local mob, then reach out to me, reach out to those that are in this space and we can kind of start that conversation for you. There's some really good you know, networks out there. We've just had the first Indigenous Native Foods and Botanicals organisation set up in the last few months. So there's, there's things happening in the Native Food space. It's 
I think up to those who want to investigate the area to really reach out to some of the either local mob or the national body and open up those conversations so that we can start from that base rather than just going ahead with it and seeking forgiveness later. Chris Andrew, I'm the general manager at Black Duck Foods, a new Indigenous social enterprise. I guess our core focus is on re-establishing, producing food from traditional agricultural practices, uh, traditional food systems, and using that to develop economic opportunities for Indigenous peoples, so to better participate in the food sector as a whole and in the land management sector more broadly. I wanted to talk a little bit about the opportunity for a bush foods industry and what you see as the opportunity, not just financially, but also beyond, I suppose. If people really start thinking about that emerging understanding of returning back to these traditional food systems starts creating the emerging industries that can appear in regional Australia. Like we have this opportunity to have thousands of year old food systems. They are the opportunity to create provenance around our food sector where that food comes in, it can be managed and processed, it can be baked, it can be milled, it can enter into the food system at a regional level. We can create provenance because that provenance is linked to that country, that country is linked to a language, that language is linked to thousands of years of culture. And people look at food provenance in Europe, we've got that dating back 100,000 years, yet it's the asset that we don't utilise. And it's amazing that people who are there talking about business and regional and economic development see the greatest asset we've got and they don't see a pathway to utilising that to reinvigorate economic development. In the bush foods market and arguably in the native seeds markets, our First Nations peoples participate to about 1% of the revenue made and 99% goes somewhere else. So it's typical of dispossession of culture, language, and obviously knowledge in that regard. And it's important for organisations like Black Duck that have an Indigenous mandate to deliver those returns back to Indigenous peoples and back to the country. Organisations like ours can be leading in this, but that's not to the exclusion of others that are able to participate. It's got to be respect and acknowledgement and protections for Indigenous cultural intellectual property and framing that around these sorts of conversations and and knowledge gathering is is really, really important because the 1% is a reflection of how we've treated it so far. And in most terminology, you just call it theft. Black Duck Foods was founded by Indigenous elder Uncle Bruce Pascoe, author of Dark Emu, a book that explores pre-colonial Indigenous agriculture systems. You know, things like the Tyndale Arc. Here's a map from the 70s that talked about the original grain belt that goes from the east coast to the west coast. Yeah, That's the, probably one of the greatest agricultural systems in the world. Yet we don't celebrate it and we're resurrecting more and more understanding of that. That is an opportunity to resurrect a traditional grain belt and participate in that. So it provides some collective benefit of participating in one project one network and people can come to it with different things but it is about getting scale and we've already seen and worked with some researchers and other proponents in this area and seeing pretty competitive yields from native grains 
in comparison to say something like wheat. So we know it's there. We also know wheat's had a few hundred years of technological tinkering. So we're doing a little bit of catch up from the technology perspective, but we're getting clean grain to take to mills to process into flour to use in production. So we're solving those problems and those challenges. And it's not to say there's not a few more, but as we develop our own skills and collaborate with researchers and other farmers and other agriculturalists, other Aboriginal organisations, we're relearning, rehearing and gaining that knowledge again and adapting those practices. And, and in that, every time we see that, we see the new opportunity that that delivers. And Chris says that reconnecting with the past and reimagining how and what we farm today is all too important given recent events, including bushfires and the pandemic. I think current circumstances give Australia pause to look at issues around food security and food sovereignty, sovereign risk, supply chains, and maybe start considering that actually we had a wonderfully resilient local grain belt many thousands of years in operation. What can we do with those food systems again and address it? And it's not saying a total shift, but this could happen in increments. And imagine if, you know, the grain sector was one that had a shift to 5% of native grains. That is monumental because that's 5% of a product that's using less water, more drought tolerant, that incorporates better fire management practices. And these aspects to it, the healing of the soil there then has that ripple effect benefit to everything else. So so there's increments that you can take, and that's what this story is about, that I think people are chasing out to see the next big thing, and they're, they're in search of the silver bullet. And I, I think the realisation there is no silver bullet, but maybe there's silver buckshot, that we try a few different things, and we look at what the systems do and, and how they react, and we take our cues from the country, and we take our knowledge from the stories, but to gain that knowledge, we can't take it. We have to be shared in that process is how I advocate. And it's coming to it with a consciousness. And that consciousness comes with it with a respect of trying to go learn and educate. Whilst there's a growing appetite for native bush foods in Australia, awareness is still emerging. And for one farmer, it happened during a chance encounter with a tiny little berry. I'm Tim Wimborne. And our farm is near Braidwood in southeast New South Wales. It's nestled right up at the base of the Butterwang Ranges. So it's wet, great soil, and that's why this plant grows there. We didn't even know this plant grew there. And in, I think it was 2014, it might have been, we registered our property with Land for Wildlife. It was part of the Great Eastern Ranges Initiative. And an ecologist from Canberra, Leslie Payton said, oh, I'll come out and do an audit there and see what the, the quality of the landscape is like, quality of the habitat. And we met her there and she came out and literally walked through the forest. She had a clipboard folder and she was writing down all the species she saw and you know, making comments about this and that. And very offhandedly, she just said to me as we walked along through the forest, oh, Tim, what a lot of pepper you have here. And that was the comment. And I, I really didn't know what she said. I said, what do you mean? What's, what's, what, where? She said, oh, this plant here, that's, uh, that's native Australian pepper. I said, oh, rightio, what's that? She said, oh, it's a bush food, rightio. And that was, some t- that was our conversation. That's all we, you know, we chatted about, really. Now, at the time of that discovery, Tim and his wife were living and working overseas in Singapore. Shortly after their visit home to the property, they decided to return permanently and start a new chapter in their lives as farmers. But what to farm? We considered potatoes. Uh, we considered medicinal opium. 
and the more and more we looked at and thought about and researched native pepper, it just ticked every box. It really did. I mean, it's already there for a start. So it's indigenous to the area. It's a great plant. It looks nice. It has a great appeal. As a food, I'm a chef by trade, it's a fantastic spice. It really is. It has so much more sophistication to its flavour than, than other you know, common black peppers. You can eat the berries, you can eat the leaves, you can use the oil from the leaves. It has quite a history from first Australians as a medicinal plant used to treat a whole range of things. And I found a couple of references online to some of the ailments Indigenous Australians used to use this plant to treat. And I think back in about 2014, some research has done on this plant which just confirmed all those properties in a laboratory environment. So it was tested against a whole range of common bacteria in a laboratory, and it killed every one of them. So the antibacterial properties from the, the extract from this plant were immense. So we just looked at this, and this just is just the right plant. We can put in place a practice to put an orchard in which ticks all our boxes. It has to be what we refer to as nature-first farming, because we're not certified organic or anything like that, but we make our own composts, uh, and we make our own plant feed. We do a companion planting method in the orchard. Effectively, we're trying to sort of replicate the forest environment in an orchard structure so it's just easier and more viable to harvest because it's really slow to harvest it in the forest. We should be able to harvest it four or five times faster in an orchard. I just wish Australians would eat a lot more Australian foods. I had, I don't know if you know Noel Butler. Noel Butler is an Indigenous man and he actually is a Budawang elder and our property is the base of Mount Budawang. And he's been out to see us a couple of times and he makes the point that Australia has 6,000 recognised foods that are indigenous to Australia that grow here and are available to people here and only 15 of them have really been commercialised and he makes the point that you know we really need to screw our heads on properly and investigate all the other potential foods here which grow here which require less impact because they're, they're naturally going to be found here and it doesn't make sense to me anyway that you go to the supermarket and you've got all this pepper from Vietnam and India and China and Africa and the best pepper in the world grows 15 kilometres away. It doesn't make sense. Australians should be eating the food that grows around them. Since commercialising the native mountain pepper on their property, Tim and his wife, Maria established the Braidwood Food Company, creating value-added food products, featuring their mountain pepper and other locally grown flavours. And after the devastating bushfires of 2020 that destroyed their farm, the business became their main focus. Since the fires and we have no harvest, that's become our main business and has grown dramatically and what we do with that business is we try and pack every product we make with they're not necessarily bush foods but local foods things taste different from different places uh, different varieties grow in different locations so we're only using flavors from our immediate area because we want people to be able to say this is what braidwood where we're from this is what braidwood tastes like so our pepper is just one element of that this is a model we're really pushing a lot Australians are actually starting to wake up to it and think, well, the food snobbery of it has to be imported to be good. It's starting to lose momentum. And gaining momentum is, in its most simplistic terms, a locavore eating practice. It's very trendy. It's a real marketing term, isn't it? You know, locavore eating. But people are starting to really recognise that they can, and for a number of reasons, should be eating the food that grows right near them and not necessarily looking too far away for that experience. I don't think we have to go crazy about it and only eat food that comes from our backyard. That's not necessary. I mean, here in Braidwood, I make a range of products 
one of the main ones I make is pasta. Now, no one grows wheat suitable for pasta anywhere near Braidwood. I don't go without it. I buy my pasta from a family who grows and mills their own in New South Wales, and it's great quality stuff, and I buy it directly from them. But all the flavours that go into that pasta come from local family-owned farms around Braidwood. Just because I want to give the people who buy our food a model which says, you know, everything you're, you're tasting comes from this district here. I mean, when I used to live in Singapore, Singapore is a wealthy city with plenty of people who are quite well-to-do. Anything that said Australian or New Zealand on it in a shop would have a premium straight away. It's seen as it's clean, it's green, it's, it's a product of great value. Coming back to Indigenous foods, is the appreciation for our Indigenous foods shifting? Is that something that is growing? And do you see that becoming more and more prevalent. Yes, it is, but it requires quite a bit of work from industry to make it happen. It's not going to happen by itself. And I don't mind saying, there's a certain amount of food racism in Australia. Look, when Europeans first came to Australia, native pepper was used by the Europeans who came. They used to use it. It was seen, I think after a while, maybe as less desirable and an imported pepper would be a sort of a sign of success. You know, now, you know, over the last 20 years, you're seeing a resurgence in these foods because people who actually understand and appreciate food are eating these Australian foods. You might look at it in the shop and say, oh, that's, I can get much cheaper pepper than that. Well, you won't taste anything like it and you're going to use a lot more of it. Well, all of those things, to me, tick boxes and make a product like this worthwhile. Getting that education out there is important. At the moment, a lot of these foods, including the pepper, is still seen as sort of a, as something a bit special. If you can afford it, you buy it. You know, people who like a more sophisticated range of flavours and so on will buy it. And I don't know the, 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 the way to get this journey from A to B, but I'd like to see every person who's having steak and chips for dinner or whatever they're doing putting native pepper on their steak. Take it one step further. Someone having their wallaby steak would have pepper berries on it. Now we're talking success. Someone listening to your experience, what's your sort of takeaway for people thinking about emerging industries, you know, emerging opportunities on their small-scale farms? When I speak to people and they say, well, we want to do something, we don't know what, and should we grow pepper or should we do something else? How do we work out where, what our thing is? Just spend time on your property, your land, wherever it is, looking at it and seeing what grows there. When Noel Butler, the Budawang elder, came out to our farm. He came out to do a welcome to country ceremony, which was great. And he stood there in the clearing on our farm, looking at the forest. He said, oh, I can see 20 things to eat in there just standing here. And like I said, if there's 6,000 indigenous foods in this country, we should all be eating them all the time. So look at your property, see what's already growing there, do some research, and don't try and change the landscape to suit you. Just work with it. And that's one of the greatest things about growing the pepper that we grow because I don't need to change the soil structure. I don't need to change, if I wanted to, a watering regime. Everything's already there. I, I mean, I do irrigate it and I make my own worm juice and so on just to make it more commercially viable, but I don't actually need to, to have a business. I don't need to change things a great deal. I don't need all these inputs and things that conventional farming has in order to have a farm business. And I go back and call it this path of least resistance is the model to chase. I mean, I've heard recently from people making bread out of native grains. To me, it's a no-brainer. Of course we should be doing that. As is pointed out by, by Bruce Pascoe, it was only, what, 17,000 years ago they suspected that someone started making bread in Australia. If that isn't enough history of it's a successful model for you, I don't know what is.
I mean, it, it makes sense socially, it, it makes sense environmentally, it makes sense economically. I can't see why you wouldn't explore that model and make something of it. Everybody's on a journey and we need to make, take that first step and it doesn't have to be a giant leap, it can just be a small step. Don't dump your whole business for something that you don't know. Even if what you know is not working, it's working for you for that moment in time. But that doesn't stop you having a moments of reflection to say, I can still change. That's a really key message, you know. I'm a person that at 40 changed what he did in his life and I feel richer for it. And it's afforded me so many opportunities that, that I never thought I would get. You can change. I think the opportunities from that can be really rewarding, but you've got to do it from a position of strength. And your position of strength happens from knowing that you've got sound foundations. And those foundations might be something that you want to move away from, but at least you know where you are and then you know where you're going to move to. This podcast has been produced by The Grow Love Project on behalf of Greater Sydney Local Land Services. The episode was mixed and edited by me, Edgar Greste, and the executive producer was Susanna Cable. Thanks to everyone who participated in the making of this episode. You can find out more about them in the show notes. And to listen to other episodes, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you know someone who could benefit, please share it with them. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.